With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the show. I think it's going to be a really interesting one. For one thing, we did a a really intriguing interview with Kevin Cunningham, the trainer of Erickson Lubin, who will be fighting on September 19th against Terrell Gachet, a fight I will do on Showtime Championship Boxing. And Kevin was excellent talking about boxing, as I knew he would be. But the interview also includes a portion that I think is very meaningful to everybody. Kevin Cunningham is a former police officer in St. Louis, and he talks about his perspective of what's going on in America now and the fight for social justice and some of the turmoil that we are experiencing. And he speaks from the perspective of a former policeman. And uh, I think you're going to want to hear that uh, for sure, in addition to all his insights into boxing, which uh, are excellent. And uh, also, I'm going to have a flashback for you uh, that ironically involves policemen. Uh, so that'll pique your interest. Uh, but first, we're going to bring in to uh, begin the uh, uh, show with me a gentleman who I do not believe has ever been arrested uh, and certainly has never been in trouble with the law, my good friend and colleague, Trip Mitchell. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the show. I think it's going to be one that will intrigue you. Uh, I know that we ha- have a very, very interesting interview uh, on this show. Kevin Cunningham, the great trainer who trains Erickson Lubin, uh, who will be fighting on September 19th against Terrell Gachet in a fight that I will announce on Showtime Championship Boxing. And we'll talk certainly about that and about Kevin's great career as a boxing trainer. And all of that, in fact, is very interesting in the interview, I can assure you. But what maybe sets this interview apart is a portion of it in which we talked about Kevin's unique perspective about what's going on in America now in terms of the call and search for social justice and some of the turmoil associated with that. Kevin uh, is a former police officer in the city of St. Louis, and he has some really intriguing insights into um, the situation I just described. So that's going to be a very intriguing part of the interview, and I think you're really going to want to hear that. Uh, In addition, I will have a uh, flashback on this episode, and ironically, it's a flashback that also (laughs) involves policemen, um, and uh, it involves my my days uh, in the early days uh, announcing on ESPN. Uh, To get us started on this podcast with questions and uh, his comments as well, uh, my good friend and colleague, Mr. Tripp Mitchell. Tripp, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Al. And it seems when you talk to trainers, you really enjoy those interviews a lot. They provide a lot of insight. 
I do. You know, I, I've always said, I, I wrote this in my book, that I thought the trainers were some of the best people to give you the unvarnished truth about oftentimes their own fighters, even, even though they're, you know, they're on their sides, uh, and everything else in the sport of boxing. And uh, we've had uh, a number of good trainers on the show already. Joe Goosen, of course, who's also a broadcaster, uh, was on here with us, and now uh, Kevin Cunningham on this show. So yeah, trainers are a, a fountain of information and knowledge in the sport of boxing. I was doing a fight a couple of years ago out in Wendover, Nevada, and a trainer right before the fight said, my guy isn't ready to go. I'm scared. And his guy got knocked out within 10 seconds. So that was candor. <laughs> yeah, you will get that sometimes from trainers. And, and if you hear it, it's best to pay attention because uh, they will, you know, it'll often lead you to, uh, to knowing what's going to happen. In that case, uh, he was really right. <laughs> so this weekend, a little controversy on the judging side. How did that ever happen in boxing? Yeah, uh, you know, another week, another judging controversy. Uh, and this one, um, you know, was intriguing because it involved Jordanus uh, um, uh, Ugas, who is a, a wonderful fighter uh, who's fighting for the first full-fledged championship for him to win uh, against Abel Ramos. Uh, in the welterweight division, and he has had close decisions before that could have gone his way in the state of California. There are a couple of fights in which he could lay claim to winning, and California has not been the uh, most hospitable uh, fight location for him in terms of getting decisions. He did win his fight against Abel Ramos this weekend, but shockingly, it was a split decision. Uh, I didn't get to see the fight live, but I had it on DVR, and then I watched it. And after I had seen the hubbub over the decision, and I can report to you that there was no way this fight was a split decision. There was actually no way it was as close as the two judges had it that had him winning. Two judges scored the fight 115-113 for Ugas. And uh, Lumerat, Dr. Lumerat, who has been a, uh, a long time judge and has had a, a long and, for the most part, meritorious uh, career, uh, scored at 117 to 110 for Ramos, um, which was one of the more shocking scorecards that we've seen in recent years, that's for sure. And um, I, there is no way to look at this fight. And it was a, it was a fun fight to watch and it had many uh, spots in it that were competitive. Ramos, on several occasions, landed big punches that stunned Dugas, appeared to stun him in any case. He never knocked him down, uh, including near the end of the fight. But there is no question that Ugas, who is a master boxer, had to win eight rounds in this fight, uh, the, probably nine. There is almost no way to find that he won less than that. So that's why I say even the 115-113 scorecards, which would be seven to five, are you got to look at those and, and think they're, they're not exactly right on the mark either. So uh, it, it's caused a lot of consternation. Uh, and I tweeted out uh, yesterday, and I'm not usually given to this uh, kind of suggestion, but I said if I was uh, Ugas, I'd never fight in California again because it just doesn't seem like it's the right location for him. Uh, and I'm not suggesting anything with that. Uh, I don't know what's in the minds of the judges there and the 
the people that make decisions, but uh, I just don't think it's a, <clears throat> a good place for him to go. In any case, Ugas did win, and uh, he is, in my opinion, uh, one of the top five welterweights in the world, five or six for sure. Uh, remember, he had that very close loss to Sean Porter, which could easily have been a win, uh, and he is, he is just a superb fighter. So I'd like to see him in the mix to fight all these big fighters. There was talk that uh, Terrence Crawford might fight him, even though Ugas is over on the other side of the street with premier boxing champions, and he fights on Fox, which this was on. And, of course, Crawford is tied in with ESPN and, um, and top rank. But in any case, Ugas deserves uh, big fights, and uh, hopefully he can get past the, uh, the trauma of this uh, experience. When you're doing a live fight during your 40 years and there's just a horrible decision, do you wait a beat before saying something? How do you kind of make it so you don't go crazy on air? Well, we had that recently, right? I was criticized on Twitter, and I already forgot the fight, but it was just recently where, oh, it was Mourinho's and Romero, which we chatted about here. Um, some people were not happy that I didn't show the sufficient outrage over Romero winning a decision against Mourinho's, which I said on the broadcast that I thought that uh, Romero had won the fight, and one of the scorecards was a crazy scorecard. I think it was 118-110 for Romero uh, or something like that. And there were fans that, that felt I didn't show the proper uh, outrage. And... I will tell you, you know, I, I think about that a lot because I do take a beat and I say to myself, okay, I want to demonstrate that this didn't seem like the fight we were watching and it wasn't, and if, if fans listen to us calling it, of course, and pay attention, they will hear us calling it in a way that doesn't denote that that fighter was likely to have won or won by that margin, uh, but I don't really see it as my job to be so outraged that I get out of my skin as a broadcaster. I, I certainly, there have been terrible decisions that I have probably been more animated about than others. Uh, and and I, I'm, it's okay to do that to a point, but I, you know, I, I believe people have looked at what they've looked at. If I've stated an opinion that so-and-so won that fight, uh, our, our, in, our, in the case of our score, Steve Farhood, he scored it um, in that Mourinho's-Romero uh, fight. He scored it for uh, Mourinho's winning, and uh, Romero ended up getting the decision that some people thought was inappropriate, and, and I thought was inappropriate. But um, So we've done our job. We've, we've reported on it. We've, we've said what we need to say. I'm, I'm not one to go crazy on the air for the most part over that. And, uh, and I, you know, if people want that, that's fine. Um, I'm just not their guy. Okay. Well, hey, by the way, we just, there's a great story over the weekend having to do with a weigh-in. DeAndre Ware saving an official's life. He's a fireman in his day job and was able to perform CPR on someone you know pretty well. Yes, he saved the life of Pete Susans, who is a uh, works with Top Rank, and he's been a promoter and matchmaker for many, many years. And I knew Pete way back in the early '80s when we started doing the ESPN uh, Top Rank Boxing Series, and he would promote and create fights in Indiana and in the Midwest. Uh, and and Pete's 
a great guy. He's one of boxing's, you know, just great characters. And uh, when I saw that it was Pete that he saved, you know, I, uh, I, I was especially grateful for that young man, um, DeAndre Ware, doing that. And uh, and and you know, that's just to me, it's just a remarkable story. And Pete's doing well now, uh, and and seems to be, you know, headed toward recovery, which is great. And uh, it just shows you that. Um, service comes from anywhere, and he, and in this case, as you said, his day job really saved the day. Yeah, that's a great story. So, if you don't mind, we'll get to the questions. The f- first question from the Cosmic Bandito. Your favorite Mexican fighter out of Morales, Barrera, or Marquez? Not who's the best. Nobody can answer that. Just your personal favorite. Intriguing. You know, all three of those fighters, Hall of Fame fighters, they, along with Manny Pacquiao, created a series of fights in the early 2000s and mid-2000s and late 1990s that I think are as good, if not better, than what the Four Kings created in the 80s. You know, Duran, Hagler, uh, Leonard, and um, Hearns. The, all, all their fights were spectacular. Um, I don't like to have favorites, but once you know everybody's retired i guess you you can among the three of them and here's what i would say you know i love all three of those fighters and they were very different uh, marquez more of a counter puncher barrera very much a boxer puncher and eric morales was a hybrid you know he could have a fight where he was rock'em sock'em and, and it was a wild affair and then he was capable of being a little more of a boxer puncher but more often than not eric morales had a hellbent uh uh for leather style that created wild fights. So if I was going to pick one of those just as a fan, it would probably be Eric Morales, only because his style lent itself to creating exciting fights. It is not to say that Marquez and Barrera weren't in wildly exciting fights. Barrera and Morales had three of the best fights you'll ever see in your life in what I think is the best trilogy ever in the sport of boxing. And Marquez certainly had wildly exciting fights with Pacquiao and others. So um, they're great. But I'd have to lean toward Morales just as a fan sitting there saying, you know, he's more likely to create a wild fight for me. Okay. Our next question comes from Ivan. Top fights you have seen live outside Corrales Castillo 1. Ah, good question. Now, almost impossible to answer. And when I was going through fights you know it's so hard to remember all the great fights you've seen uh two of the fights on this list i saw i wasn't announcing uh i just was uh was was present for them. well one of them i was just present for so uh of course i have to put agler hearns on that list even though it only was two and a half rounds because of the nature of that first round and because of the nature of the fight and how important it was and all it brought to boxing and uh, what it meant to me personally. That one, of course, I did announce. Uh, Vasquez Marquez, number three, Israel Vasquez and Rafael Marquez, their third fight, which was at uh, in California, outdoors, uh, at whatever it was called at that time, uh, it, the, the, you know, the Home Depot Center or the Dignity Health Center. It's had 14 names. Um, great location for boxing. And that that was a phenomenal fight, uh, the third in, in, of what would be four fights for them and, and the best of, uh, of all of them. 
And then I'm going to go back to a fight I watched as, well, I was covering it for Boxing Illustrated, but I wasn't announcing it. Uh, Kenny Norton and Larry Holmes, back in the late 70s. Uh, it, it remains to this day one of the, I think, one of the best heavyweight championship fights ever. You know, Larry Holmes got off to a great start in the fight, and at one point, uh, Kenny Norton said to his trainer, Bill Slayton, he, said, he looked at him and said, it's my turn now. And going out in round six, it was his turn, and he controlled the middle rounds. And then from rounds 10 through 15, it was a pitched battle. Round 15 ended up uh, deciding the fight. I believe that, and, it, and, and, it, and it, whoever won that round was going to win the fight, I believe Norton won the round because I think he won the, la the, the first two-thirds of the round. The last third of the round was won by Norton, but sometimes the last third is what sticks in the judges' minds. And Norton ended up getting, or uh, Kenny Holmes ended up getting a, uh, Larry Holmes, excuse me, ended up getting a very close, razor-thin decision over Kenny Norton. But it was, uh, it was one of the, the great fights, uh, I think, heavyweight fights ever. Then uh, I, I'm going to put Marvin Hagler on this list again, uh, his fight with uh, John Mugabe. And again, I didn't announce that fight, but I was covering for SportsCenter. And that fight is an underrated gem. Uh, not everybody always thinks of that when they think of these, the, these amazing fights. But uh, Marvin Hagler and John Mugabe put on an amazing show. Hagler ended up, of course, stopping Mugabe. It was uh, John Mugabe's greatest performance, even in losing. Uh, he was spectacular. You know, he had made his fame really as a 154-pounder, and here he was up at 160 facing Marvin Hagler, uh, you know, um, who is Marvin Hagler. Uh, and, um, and he performed so well even in losing. So that was wildly exciting. And then uh, the last one on the list is Michael Carbohal taking on Chiquita Gonzalez in their third fight, or their first fight, I'm sorry, which I announced with Tom Kelly, uh, one of my, uh, my, my great uh, friends from broadcasting and who West Coast fans know very well because he was the voice of USC football for many years. And that fight was wildly exciting. Carboho would go down, he would get up, and he would ultimately knock out Chiquita Gonzalez. It was just total warfare at the Las Vegas Hilton. So that's my five. I, probably tomorrow that list could change, but for, for today, that's the list. Okay, and I've got a couple questions for future episodes. And just to germinate on this one, and I'll, I'll put it into Twitter to see if you pick it, but I would love to know all-time fights before you became a professional writer and broadcaster, what fight would you have loved to have been at? So I'll let you think about that one. Very good. That's a good question. Okay, I like that one. We'll, we'll include that one. We'll do that next week. Perfect. Okay, next question from RGN. As you blossomed in your profession, who are some of the, your mentors and how did they help you along the way? Yeah, I had several people that, uh, a number of people that have, have helped me. Uh, one of the, I've kind of alluded to it before on episodes, but uh, one of the, the, uh, the most pronounced mentors to me was the great Don Dunphy who many people, including your father-in-law, who loves those old-time fights, uh, remember. Don was uh, the voice of boxing from then the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, and both on radio and then on television. 
And <clears throat> I grew up, when I was a young man, I, when I was nine years old, I used to, in our house, I used to sneak down the stairs just out of eyesight of my, my dad uh, uh, while he was sitting there watching the fights on Friday, the Friday night fights, and I would listen to the fights. I would hear Don Dunphy and all the excitement, and I couldn't even see it. Uh, then some months later, all of a sudden, when I was doing this, I hear my mother say to my dad, okay, let him down. They knew all along I was there. <laughs> Finally, she said, if he's going to go sneak down, we might as well let him come down and stay up late and watch the, watch the boxing with you. And I did watch with my dad uh, the, the boxing. And, of course, at that point, Don Dunphy was uh, already you know, becoming an idol to me. Flash forward to 1985 when I was five years into my career at ESPN and I, we were doing a show where we were moving the, the, the fights to Friday night. And somebody came up with the very good idea of interviewing Don Dunphy because he was the voice of Friday night fights for so many years. And sure enough, he, he, we were, I think, in Atlantic City or somewhere and they got him to come and he was coming on and I was going to interview him and I was nervous and excited all at the same time and um, I'll never forget the first moment I met him he strode up to me put his hands out and said Al so nice to meet you and it was like this you know the typical Don Dunphy what I would come to know of him this open-hearted kind of guy and uh, and we did the interview and it was a long interview for a TV show it was about seven or eight minutes we ran it on the, the show he gives me his phone number and he said, now you, he said, give me your phone number. He said, I want to stay in touch with you. Well, we did. And he became a friend and a mentor to me. And when Don was, when the Ring Magazine had a, uh, I believe it was a, a 75th anniversary or 50th anniversary, I don't know what it was, uh, where they, annou they, they, they announced different people that were the greatest, um, greatest heavyweight, greatest this, greatest promoter, greatest that. They had greatest announcer, and of course Don Dunphy was given that award. He asked for me to present the award to him, and that was an emotional moment for me. And I remember being in the wings. It was a big production of this thing. They were televising it. It was a big banquet, and I, at that moment, I was almost overcome because I thought about how my father, who died when I was 12 years old, would have felt to see me on that stage, giving that award to Don Dunphy. Uh, you know, even now, just recounting the story, you know, gives me goosebumps. Uh, and I went on and did it, and uh, Don was always great to me. He was, uh, uh, he was so wonderful and so charming. And, and I told the story, I think, on the show here about how he brought, uh, but I'll repeat it because not everybody sees every episode. When Don Dunphy came to see me perform, he was, Don Dunphy was a big, uh, Broadway guy. He knew he was a celebrity, of course, in New York, and he knew all the great uh, composers. He knew Irving Berlin. He knew Cole Porter. He knew uh, Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe, who wrote, you know, uh, My Fair Lady and all those great musicals. And he, when I was performing my music, uh, it was probably before one of the Hearns or Hagler fights at Caesar's Palace. Don came and he said, "Now, he said, I want you to do a song." one of the Lerner and Lowe songs. And I said, okay, I'll do it if you want me to. So I did. And while I was, when I got up, or I was gonna do it, and I was up on stage and I saw Don Dunphy there, and who had he brought with him as a guest? Frederick Lowe. 
the man who wrote all those great songs with Alan J. Lerner. And here I was up there, I had to sing one of their songs with Frederick Lowe out there. And uh, Frederick Lowe turned out to be a delightful guy. And uh, this was, he died not that long after uh, this. And uh, it was a, a joy to meet him. So Don Dunphy was a big part of my life. The other gentleman I'll mention in this long-winded answer is uh, Gil Clancy, who uh, was a great trainer and broadcaster and did everything in the sport of boxing. Gil was wonderful to me. Uh, he, he mentored me. He pushed me for jobs. He was one of the people responsible for me getting the Olympics when I did the Olympics for NBC. He was just a great, great mentor. And the thing about Gil Clancy is he told it to you exactly like it was. If he thought you were doing something wrong or you should improve something, he was going to tell you. Just like because he was a teacher when he was younger and then he became a trainer. And he was going to tell you exactly what you were supposed to do. And never in a mean way, but in a, a very specific way. So Gil Clancy was the other great mentor that I had. Well, those, those are great. And in a future show, I'd love to visit with you a little bit when we have some time about how important announcers are to people's relationship with boxing, maybe more so than any other sport except maybe baseball on radio. But yeah, boxing and the yeah. announcers. It's intriguing. Yeah, how much it and, – and I think that places a big responsibility on us because we can influence people and, uh, and we shouldn't do so uh, in an untoward way. Yeah, so that's good. All right, so those are our questions for today. Uh, and uh, since I was just reminiscing, I will continue that theme with our flashback of the day. Now, this flashback goes back to, I'm going to say, the summer of 19, the late summer of 1980. ESPN bo top-ranked boxing series had started, oh, maybe eight or nine months before that. I had gotten on the series only a few months before this incident happened. And ESPN was, one of the fights was, that ESPN and Top Rank had was always was stationed at the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago. The Aragon was a former uh, 1940s and 50s ballroom where the big bands played and, uh, and, and people would come and dance. And in the 80s, it was still around. It was a little, you know, worse for the wear, but still an arena, a place where you could have fights. And Ernie Terrell, the promoter, put his fights there. Now, cable television was still very new in many places in 1980. It was only in its embryonic stages. And most of Chicago and most of the suburbs did not have cable. So here was this truck, this TV truck, in, outside the Aragon Ballroom that had ESPN in big letters on it. And there were these gentlemen, of course, taking equipment in and out of the, 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 uh, uh, the Aragon Ballroom, sometimes removing things, sometimes, you know, uh, doing a lot of different endeavors. And a couple of Chicago policemen came by in their squad car and saw this truck with letters that they did not know and had no idea what they were. And they saw people taking things out of the Aragon Ballroom, out of the building, in the middle of the day when it's supposed to be closed. And they called for backup. And several more squad cars came. And they watched this continue to happen. And they said, these guys are looting the Aragon Ballroom. They 
came into the truck, guns drawn, to find a shocked TV producer <laughs> looking down the muzzle of his guns. He, and he had to explain to them that they were a TV network and they were going to televise boxing that day. Finally, they, even though these, these policemen still had no idea what ESPN was, he convinced them and the operations director came over and, you know, the, the, they were all panicked. Well, the, the upshot, the final upshot of the story is, okay, they, they said fine. But then one of the policemen said, you know, you might, might need that. And there's an extra permit you, you need for this. And the uh, operations guy said, well, no, we've applied for it. We've done all the permits to do it. He said, no, I, I think for us to allow you to stay there, there's something else you would need to do, but I'll have to check into that. And he went away and I said to the producer and the, uh, uh, the operations guy, I said, I I'm new to broadcasting, but I'm not new to Chicago. <laughs> I said, I believe that this particular policeman is talking about some remuneration. And, you know, sometimes that's how things worked, right? And sure enough, they, that was required by the operations guy. To this day, I don't know what he put on his expense account for that expenditure. So um, it was an intriguing uh, event. And uh, that particular producer talked about that for years afterwards. He was a little shook when he saw them come in uh, with their guns drawn. So that was, yeah, that was our, that was our experience in, uh, in uh, Chicago uh, with ESPN. Well, I mentioned that uh, Kevin Cunningham, uh, the great trainer and uh, 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 mentor in boxing to so many great fighters, who you will hear in this interview, and I deliberately um, did the interview in this way. I, I, I really went back to Kevin Cunningham's roots so that you, as a boxing trainer, and I mentioned he was a former police officer who had uh, um, worked with, with disadvantaged youth uh, early in his career uh, in terms of boxing. And you'll hear all that in this interview, as well, of course, as his great insights into um, the boxing world. So here's our chat with Kevin Cunningham. Kevin, it's a delight to have you uh, join us here on the show. I've been meaning to do this for some weeks, and finally, I was able to to get it worked out, and um, and just in time because uh, we're in time to talk about uh, the fight that you have coming up with your charge, Erickson Lubin. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to uh, chat with you a little bit about you and your career and all the great things that um, that you've done, and I've been privileged uh, on occasion to be a part of. Um, not everyone knows uh, that you started out your adult career as a police officer, and um, that was kind of what led you to boxing. You were a police officer that worked with young boxers in the St. Louis area, correct? Yes. Um, uh, actually, I was in the military, and uh, I was in the Army. I was on the Army boxing team, and when I uh, got out of the military, I went into the police academy, and... Uh, Back then, that was uh, in 1990, and uh, by 91, 92, uh, that was back doing that, uh, you know, the, it was heavy gang violence in, in the city yeah. at that And you had the uh, Rodney King situation, so the nation was, was in an uproar, kind of similar to where we are today right. again. 
you know, with the, with, you know, and the, 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 the community and the, 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 the inner city community, the urban community, the black community, and the, and, and the police department's relationship was kind of at a strain. So uh, being out there riding around in the squad car and, 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 and you know, you, you're basically dealing with, 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 with uh, calls for crime, murder, robberies, stabbing, shootings all day, every day. And, and, you, and, you, and, and when you're dealing with these incidents, you, you're noticing that the, 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 the subjects that you're dealing with are getting younger and younger and younger. Right. And at that I said, man, we got to do something other than just show up after the, the, the crime has been committed. We've got to try to come up with something, dealing with some of this stuff on the front end, as opposed yeah. to wait, wait until it happened on the back end, because, you know, at that point, it's too late. So, you know, I uh, decided to come up uh, with the, uh, you know, I thought about when I was growing up, I, I played uh, baseball for the Police Athletic League, you know, and uh, my, my football coach was a police officer. So I started the Police Athletic League in St. Louis at that time. And that's, you know, I started the boxing program and which was the only program that the PAL had at the time. So, uh, and that in turn started, you know, you had other officers join to do baseball, basketball, but the boxing program is what I started the whole PAL program with a boxing program. So that's how I got started. People sometimes uh, talk about the U.S. amateur boxing program and they talk about gold medals and uh, at the Olympics and international competition and, uh, and how the U.S. team does. But in reality, U.S. amateur boxing isn't about that. It's about what you did uh, and what happens every day around the United States in changing young men and women's lives. Right. That's correct. And uh, basically... You know, you got to give these youth something, something positive to look forward to in terms of uh, just, uh, you know, a lot of them are coming from single family homes. Uh, and a lot of them are dis disadvantaged youth that we're dealing with. So if they don't have some kind of program, some kind of positive program with a positive role model and figure, uh, that could be the difference in that individual's whole life. Yeah, no question about that. And boxing has so often provided uh, the, the spark to change things. Now, you did this great work. And while you were a police officer, and I'm wondering also, how did that, how were you able to kind of juggle both those things and, and do justice to your job as a police officer and also do this for the kids? That had to be very, very difficult. Yeah, it was rough. It was rough, you know. Uh, you know, it, it it even it you know there was even times when when some of some of my coworkers back then uh, kind of you know frowned on it a little bit because mm. there in those particular areas a lot of police officers that are that are, that are assigned to police departments they don't they don't live in those areas they're not mm -hmm. from those so they look at the people that are that are in those areas that they're policing as almost you know and it might sound harsh but almost as the enemy you mm -hmm. know that's because you know there's such friction with the community and the police department 
So when you got a guy like me that get off work at 4.30 in the evening, and instead of going home to my wife and daughter, I'm going to the worst neighborhood in the city of St. Louis and training fighters from six, six o'clock to eight, nine o'clock at night. They're looking at me like I'm like something's wrong with me, you know. <laughs> they didn't quite okay. get it, did they? Yeah, yeah. So so well, uh, you made it. Yeah. You made a great yeah. contribution to the community, that's for sure. And then you, uh, at a certain point, um, you, your boxers, and you're, you had such an acumen for this and you were so good at it, your boxers were great and they kept winning and, they, uh, and ultimately uh, there were fighters that went into the pro ranks like Corey Spinks, who was your first champion, and you made the transition from training uh, at, at, you know, amateurs to professionals and ultimately made the transition into training full-time. How did that come about? Well, um, like you said, we, I started out with the amateur program, and uh, I, I started out just trying to give kids something to do after school, something positive to do. Right. And uh, the kids were, were that, that, that I had in my program, they were, they were so committed so the more the more that they showed me that they were committed to the program, the more time and commitment I put into them. And uh, before you know it, a couple of years had gone by, and all of a sudden, three years down the line, we got one of the best amateur programs in the country. Not just St. Louis, yeah, but amateur programs in the country. So, and some of those some of those kids, like as you mentioned, Corey Spinks. Devin Alexander yeah. uh, and several others had gone on to win several national championships and they wanted to turn pro, you know, uh, you know, they come from uh, poverty and they have people starting to whisper in their ears, telling them how great they are and they can turn pro and this and that and this and that. So I decided that, you know, if these kids that I raised up through this, boxing program and I know the boxing business and I know how the business can be you know uh, I decided to you know navigate them transition mm -hmm. amateurs to the pro and try to help navigate them through a professional career and that's how that all started and you navigated Corey Spinks uh, your first champion all the way to the world championship and uh, a wonderful career uh, they how exciting well, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, it was, it, you know, it was a, a marvelous time. Uh, and he, uh, he created some exciting moments for the city of St. Louis in boxing as well. Um, that had to be very gratifying for you to have taken this young man in the midst of what, you know, the, the difficult circumstances you, that were going on when you were trying to teach us boxing and get him all the way to a world title. Yeah, it was it was really gratifying, and uh, yeah, Al, you were there for that uh, history-making night. Yeah, but it all came to fruition because you know, once my guys turned pro, Al, I started my own promotion company. Yes, I didn't I didn't just take the guys and sign with a promoter. I started my own promotion company mm -hmm. at little shows in St. Louis yeah. to help my guys' records. And so 
you know, I spent from 1998 to 2007, I promoted six shows a year, six professional shows a year. Right. And so, you know, I, I was, you know, training the fighters, promoting the fighters, managing <laughs> the fighters, hanging posters in the barbershops, in the bar, you know, and trying to get people to come out to my little shows. And we were getting five, six, and we started getting 1,000, 1,200 people to, to some of the shows. And, and that night that we made history in St. Louis and we put 23,500 in the Scott Trade Center, you were there that night. Yeah, it was an amazing evening. It was amazing. Yeah, that was really something. And a culmination, you explained it really well, a culmination of that grassroots work that you put into it. The words right out of my mouth, that came from a lot of hard grassroots work. You know, people, people only saw that big night where we sold out the Savage Center and it's one of the biggest crowds in an arena in boxing history, they said at the particular time. So, uh, but people don't know what the, the work that was put in to, to get to that point. Yeah, it was pretty extraordinary. And you, you took Corey through his, uh, his title run, also helped Devin Alexander become a great champion and had a great run with him. And now, you uh, are one of the preeminent trainers in the sport of boxing, uh, and uh, you are going to be headed in uh, on September 19th into a matchup uh, with your charge, Erickson Lubin, taking on Terrell Gachet. Erickson Lubin, a fighter, a very talented amateur and professional fighter who you took on after he suffered a loss to Jamel Charlo, a, a devastating loss. He was knocked out in the first round. And you became his trainer, and you guys have put together four wins since then, and now he is on the cusp of getting another chance at a, at a world title. What was it like to try and take over the reins of his career and uh, rebuild his confidence? Well, first of all, you know, it was, it was, it was uh, I took this, I took on this, this project it, it, it had it had special meaning to me because the he's a young man, but but I'll say the kid approached me on his own. Just mm. you know, one day I was in Miami, and uh, we were uh, was at a restaurant, and he was there with with several other fighters, and he walked over and he approached me and asked me if I would consider working with him. He's looking to, to change trainers and ask me what I consider working with him. So I told him, sure, you know, uh, you know, just come to the gym, you know, come on down and we get together and see, see how things work out. So, I mean, he came to me on his own by himself. No, it wasn't a deal where the manager or anything, they felt like, you know, they reached out to me and it, it was this kid came to me thought enough of me to say, you the guy that can help turn my career around and would you be willing to help me? So I, you know, I, I take, I, I take a lot of pride into really helping Hammer, you know, uh, because he came to me on his own and, and, and he showed up a week later and we've been together ever since. And, uh, it's just, uh, I start working with him and, uh, I realized that, you know, you know, I'm kind of, I'm, 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 
I'm kind of all right with softball. I do, a, I do, I do, I think I do a little a decent job with softball. So, <laughs> yes, I, yes, you um, have done a fairly good job with yeah. lefties. Yes, I think we can say that. Yeah. So, once I got him in the gym, I saw that, you know, I've, I've watched him. I've even commentated one of his fights mm. on uh, uh, Bounce TV. So, okay. I've watched. So, uh, you know, and he's always been a hell of a fighter, you know, but when I got him in the gym, I realized just how much untapped skill and ability that he really has and he and it just hadn't been brought out of him. So, uh, and that's that's one of the things I take pride in, really, when I work with a softball, is teaching a softball how to take advantage of being a softball. Yes. Yeah, and that's that, interesting. And, and, and that, that is really, he's really, it, it has really elevated his game. It's, it's really taken him to another level. That's a fascinating point uh, because uh, you need to do that, if, you know, if you're training left-handers and you have such experience at doing it. Uh, and maybe that's something that he wasn't doing as much of as, as he should have. And now here he is um, taking on uh, Gachet. Uh, and what does Gachet bring to the table in this fight that you guys have had to study and take a look at? Well, you know, I get I, I, I got two opportunities because we were supposed to fight Terrell and he had an injury, so right. he had to pull out and then we ended up with Gallimore. But so I've had two camps basically mm. to get an opportunity to really watch. Terrell and, and see just exactly what he brings to the right. table. So I think I pretty much got a beat on just about everything he's trying to do. He's a solid fighter. Yeah. Uh, fundamentally sound. He's, he's patient, you know, and, uh, you know, he's a good fighter. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't become an Olympian. Right. Unless you can really fight. And uh, he's one of the better He's, he's a top 10 junior middleweight. So he's one of the better fighters in the division. And he's the type of guy that you got to be on top of your game in order to beat him. You can't, you can't, you won't beat Terrell Crochet unless you're on top of your game. Right. So we got to be, everything's got to be on point. We got to be on top of our game. And uh, we, we're having a tremendous training camp. So uh, I don't expect anything less from Hammer. Uh, Erickson is, uh, uh, in the time you've worked with him, you mentioned uh, accentuating the things he can do as a southpaw. What are some of the things that he's done that's really impressed you, whether it's leading up to or including this camp that make you think of him as a guy that could be, a, you know, a champion and a real force at 154 pounds? Well, I mean, he's, he's, he's got a really, really good, he's got a really great skill set. And anything you can teach him, he has the ability to execute. Uh -huh. and that, that's been that's I, I, I get great pleasure in 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 when when you're training and teaching a guy, and you're in camp going over and over and over, and then you see a guy go out and execute it. That's 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 one of the most gratifying things for a coach. And he does that every fight. He shows me that. The things that we worked on in camp, he goes out and executed, and and that's and that's a great thing. And another thing too, uh, like I said, I'm you, you know I I, I have a extensive experience with it, with soft paws at at the world class level, and uh, this kid here 
is probably the biggest punch in softball I've ever worked with. So that's probably yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So so he he he's got the skill set along with the pop. So that's 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 a that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's a that's a, a nice combination. Well, he'll be in action against uh, Terrell Gaucher, and that uh, we're looking forward to that. That's going to be on Showtime on the nineteenth, and we are looking forward to it. I wanted to ask you. Uh, if you don't mind to get, because no one better to analyze the fight or, and uh, kind of break it down than, uh, than you, Kevin Cunningham. Uh, Jermel Charlo is taking on Jason Rosario on September 26th in the 154 pound division. And I'm curious, how do you see that fight? What does that fight look like to you? Man, that fight, it depends. I tell you, it depends on how Jamel Charlo chooses to fight this fight. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if if he fights the way he's fought in the past, he's, 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 I mean, because he's a talented, athletic fighter. He's strong, he's athletic, you know, and he's, he's got skill. But he, he has a tendency to want to, want to go to war yeah. and bang. And he's got the right guy. If he want to go to war and bang, he's, he's got the right guy in front of him because uh, Rosario has showed that, that he's strong, he's solid, he's sturdy, and, 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 and if you want to bang, he, he's the guy to do it with. And, and, and you're really giving him an opportunity if you choose to do that. But, hey, you know, Jamel has those tendencies, and uh, it could be – this could be this, – this, this fight has fight of the year written all over it. Very interesting, and uh, you you hit on a very salient point there, that there have been times when Jamel Charlo will kind of throw wide punches and be overly aggressive, and that's kind of what you're alluding to. And Rosario is a good counterpuncher and has pop in his punch. Yeah, if 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 if, if Jamel boxes smart and pick and chooses the times when he's down and 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 and. and crack on Rosario, but but do it, you know, have, use smart aggression is what I'm saying. I think I think Jamel wins, but he gets baited into a, a, a firefight and, 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 and goes to war. I mean he gives Rosario a chance to 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 do what Rosario, you know, has done lately. And and that's that's you know he's got the he's got the thump to get a guy out of there. And he's got some little subtle, quirky little things that he does that works for him. You know, yeah. he, he's he's not just out there winging big punches. He he, he does little 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 half hook feints and, and 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 sets up right hands and hooks and uppercuts. So, I mean, he there's a method to Rosario's madness. So. Uh, this could this could be like I said this could be a hell of a fight I'm expecting a hell of a fight and uh, uh, the winner in my eyes is the undisputed junior middleweight champion. Yeah, that's a very good point. Very good point. Um, you uh, have on your hat in your head your St. Louis Cardinals cap, and you are really a, a great baseball fan. You 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 live in a city that has a, a, you know is steeped in tradition with. Uh, with baseball, we always kid around about me being a Cubs fan and you being a Cardinals fan. But you, baseball has been a big. A, you play baseball, of course, and you, as I said, you have a team that's well worth rooting for. Always, they are continually in the in the hunt. 
what does baseball mean to you as kind of a pastime and a, something in your life to, to, to give you something special? I mean, baseball is everything in St. Louis. As a matter of fact, you know, I, you, you're, you, I guess, Al, you're old enough to know, but see, I played baseball as a kid, and I suffered from what they call little league elbow because I played, I pitched, and I played shortstop. Yeah. So, I, you know, the major league uh, players, they call little league elbow, they, they end up getting Tommy John surgery for yeah. little league elbow. So, that's how much, I'm, you know, I'm entrenched in baseball. I, I uh, went through that whole little little league elbow from trying to, you know, I was 12 years old trying to throw a 90-mile-per-hour yeah. fast and, you know, kind of messed up my elbow a little bit. So, uh, but baseball is everything in St. Louis. I mean, it, it the Cardinals, they are St. Louis. So Yeah, true. I mean, and uh, it's one of the, uh, it has one of the richest traditions outside, I think, outside of the Yankees, the Cardinals have won more World Series than right. any other, you know. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And and uh, and you, you, you hit on it that, you know, and again, I'm a Cubs fan, so of course there's a rivalry, but I have a huge and abiding respect for the Cardinals as an organization because they, you, they've made, they've tapped into that community in and and have put such a good product on the field all the time that all it's time. allowed people like you to be a fan and to be a part of it right yeah oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah because i mean like i said the cardinals they are st louis you, yeah. you i mean there's there's nobody in living in the city of st louis that that don't support the cardinals yeah no that that's true um you are i talked about that as it related to the community. You know, I mentioned earlier that you spent the first part of your life after you got out of the military as a policeman in St. Louis. And I, I, I don't wanna uh, uh, make this conversation turn in a way that's either uncomfortable for you or, or, uh, uh, or, or inappropriate, but you are a former policeman and you have commented uh, on, you know, what we're going through as a country now uh, and and it's not just what we're going through now. It's a it's something that's been endemic in our society. It's just that it's getting more attention now, and it's and and it's reached the the forefront of everybody's minds. How how as a former police officer have you been able to kind of wrap your arms around this whole situation and make some sense of it? Well, Al, um, you know, there's been a lot of times people ask me. So, so why, why, what, what, what was, what was the reason you left the, the police department? Well, you know, I, I really enjoyed training fighters and, 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 and doing what I was doing and, 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 and wanting to live a life to do what I do that makes me happy and all of that. But also I experienced some of the things that now people are seeing via cell phone cameras. I experienced some of those incidents and situations that just left a horrible taste in my mouth. Yeah. So I just decided, you know, this is not something I wanted to be a part of anymore. And that was the determining factor that when I went in and resigned, I, that was the main reason for it. Mm -hmm. Because it was, it's like, uh, 
I mean, there's there's uh, unwritten code, you know, that we're all blue and it's us against them. And see, I can speak on it because I lived it. Yeah. So, uh, and and that's and that's that's real. And and with that attitude, that's how you get a lot of the situations that we're witnessing today. You know, uh, it's it's just it's sad that in night and, and in 2020 that we're still dealing with that type of situation in society. But uh, until they go in, and I tell you what until they break up those police unions because the police unions are supporting that type of behavior, it, you, you, it's not going to Is there a way to get us to neighborhood policing? Uh, there have been some communities that have been a little more effective than others uh, because it, you, you rightfully made the point that police and, and, and the community have to feel somehow connected. Is there a way in your mind to get to true neighborhood policing? Yeah, for sure. But they, they, the police department has to really be committed to neighborhood policing, to PAL programs. Mm -hmm. Not Don't just start those programs for a publicity stunt right. and, and until the heat calms down and then you go back to the same old way right. of doing you have to really be committed, committed to community-oriented policing. And look at your communities as community partners as opposed to the attitude is us against them. And right. until we get that point, we're going to continue to have these, these type of situations like a Jacob Blake and, 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 and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and those type of situations. Well, you you uh, walked the walk and talked the talk and did that. So um, everyone should uh, raise their glass to you for doing that. And hopefully more uh, departments than more individual police officers will take that as their lead. Uh, you have, in addition to that, of course, you've distinguished yourself as one of the great trainers in the sport of boxing. I have been delighted and honored that I've been able to cover that from time to time and very often. And uh, it's such a joy to have you come on and visit with us. Hey, Al, I'm going I'm to ask you, do you remember that night in St. Louis after that ring walk with Corey and Nelly? You remember, yes. what, you remember what you said, Al? That was probably one of the best ring walks you ever witnessed. That's right. I did say that. That was amazing. Yeah, Nelly, wa Nelly was there. You guys walking in. It was, it was amazing. And the energy in that room was so extraordinary and uh, yeah it was and to this day it remains uh, a moment that and and you know what makes it more special even hearing you talk um and reminding uh, me and everybody else about what it took for you to get st louis and your boxer and boxing to that point that was kind of like the apex of 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 all that work that you've done wasn't it yeah, it was. It, 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 and, and, you know, it, it, the, the end result was, 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 was a downer. But at the, now that I look back on it, it's still, you know, it was, it was something real special that night. It really was. You know, you're right. You're, unfortunately, your fighter ended up at the end of the fight, you know, not being able to get through and Corey lost the fight. Um, but, but more was done in the service of, of boxing and the community then was lost that night. That's for sure. 
I agree. Kevin, thank you so much for visiting with us, and um, I hope we can do it again sometime soon. And good luck with uh, Erickson Lubin against uh, Terrell Gachet. Thanks, Al. Appreciate it. See you soon. All right. Take care. So I think that interview did deliver on the promise I suggested to you at the beginning of being very intriguing and uh, poignant in some spots and also interesting on all levels. Now, we are going to have another really good interview uh, in our next episode, because in our next episode, Trip, we get to visit with Holt McElhaney, who is a fantastic actor, star, one of the stars of Mindhunter, a, a very famous um, series on Netflix. And also, uh, Holt is not only a huge boxing fan, but has a history with the sport. Uh, he played a, a boxer in the 2011 series Lights Out on FX, and he also played Teddy Atlas in a movie. So uh, Holt is, uh, you know, has a lot of connections to the sport of boxing. Well, it's funny how you've gotten a chance to meet a lot of stars who really care about boxing. In the case of Mindhunters, that is a binge-worthy show, and they're trying to decide whether they're going to have season three, and the Mindhunter fans, like myself, my wife, are really pushing for that. But when he's on screen, he carries the whole show. You don't notice anyone else. Yeah, Holt is fantastic in that show. And yes, needless to say, for everybody watching here, you know that's one of the questions we're going to ask him. What are the chances of a, a season three? And uh, how would that, you know, hopefully, I know everyone's hoping that uh, that it comes back. And uh, it's just a, you know, phenomenal show. And he and he, when I'm, I, I met him one time at, uh, at fights about eight or nine months ago, and he, we have many of the same friends, and of course he knows a lot of my broadcast colleagues, Steve Farhood uh, and others, and, um, and he was just a delightful, delightful man. And his mother, interestingly, which I will probably ask him about in the interview, is the great Julie Wilson, who is a very famous cabaret singer in New York, and had success, some broader success as well, uh, years ago. And uh, so I had fun talking to him about her. But uh, so Holt comes from a, a show business family, and uh, he's just remarkable. And he loves boxing. And I can't wait to get his takes on the current boxers, which we will, as well as discussing uh, his great career. Well, this was fun today. Uh, we covered a myriad of subjects. And, uh, and I think Kevin Cunningham uh, provided us with a, a fascinating interview. Uh, Trip, I want to thank you for your efforts. Thanks to Lee for putting this all together for us. And we will see you on our next episode. Take care, everybody.